chapter 15 today. I want to, <clears throat> you know, we, uh, we started going on Skype a couple of weeks ago for people that are in college, and today, Kelsey, who's down at John Brown University, she's on it back there watching our service this morning, so we want to say hi to Kelsey. And Crystal, uh, Shane, pardon me? Oh, I thought somebody said something. Crystal, Shane's uh, wife uh, from Afghanistan, she's on too, so welcome. And uh, it's going to grow throughout the week, throughout the time we use it. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And last week, one of the things that we did was we got to the bottom of the problem that the church at Corinth was going through. We have seen chapter by chapter how they were just completely messed up on everything. And uh, they're not growing. They're not happy in the Lord. They're just having some real issues. And Paul tells them that you're a bunch of spiritual babies. And every chapter he has come through and he's talked about the issues. And in chapter 15, not only did we see what the main problem was, but we got a little insight into how it got started and the heart of the problem. It took us 15 chapters to get to it, but as you put it all together, you begin to see exactly what's taking place here. We know now that there's an underlying element of people in this church who basically um, stopped growing and they got cynical about what God was trying to accomplish and trying to do and they got some issues with Paul and uh, they're bringing bad teaching and trying to go contrary to what the Bible says. And uh, you know, we saw last week that, that this group is called the mixed multitude. They're not really doing anything for God and uh, they're out there in the fringe, and uh, they just get caught up in all the things that uh, seemingly uh, uh, they miss what God is doing and begin to focus on all the negative things. We showed you how that those things in the Old Testament, the mixed multitude out of Numbers chapter 11, was we came through chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, we saw how Paul said that these things are for our example and our examples and for our admonition. In other words, we're to learn from this. <clears throat> we're to learn how that this church got in trouble. We're to learn the problems this church had and what they were going through. We talked last week also about the art of learning not just to see, but to observe. When you see something, you see it, but when you observe something, you see it in the context of what God's doing on a wider scale. <clears throat> and uh, we talked about the great thing that you and I needed to do uh, was to b keep that walk with God exactly where God wanted it to be. I think the greatest thing that you should come away with from last week is the fact that nothing will expose the mixed multitude. I, as I thought about it all week and, and, and reflected back on it, and I, I don't know, I guess the greatest thing that you should have learned last week is that nothing will expose the mixed multitude like a Bible preaching on fire, principle foundation ministry, uh, that will expose it all the time. And very frankly, between me and you, that's why the mixed multitude hate that kind of stuff because it does expose them. It's like going to a, a track meet, like a 400-meter track meet, watching eight or nine, ten guys come out of the thing and run around the track. And yet, <clears throat> all over the track and all over the lanes are people are just standing around kind of looking and, and like they're at a beach someplace. The contrast between the runners and the ones that are standing is unmissable. 
And Christianity is supposed to be a race. You're told that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that we are in a race. And when people run the race, and then there's people who just stand and don't do anything, it's just that obvious. And uh, you should know now by this great chapter that it centers on the main issue that they're struggling with. And that main issue is the concept of the resurrection. We saw that uh, Paul, uh, he really begins to deal with that. And the mixed multitude are telling them that there is no resurrection. And we see him causing all kinds of problems. And what we saw in verses 1 through 4, chapter 15 was a great definition of what the gospel is. And you should have that definition in your Bible now. Now, when we start coming to these last 19 verses, he begins to lay out in detail the concept of the resurrection. See, in the first part of the chapter, he dealt with the need to have a resurrection. And he showed us that if we don't have a resurrection, you got nothing. If there is no resurrection, then you and I, uh, our salvation is worthless. Everything we're doing in church this morning is worthless. It's not just the fact that Christ came and died. Every religious leader came and died. It's the fact that he did not stay dead. And it puts the emphasis of the resurrection as the premier thing that we have to hold on to, that everything is built around. And uh, it's one of the greatest concepts all throughout the Word of God. And now, in the last part of the book, he begins a detailed layout. He begins a, almost a verse-by-verse dissertation of laying out the two aspects of the resurrection. And you remember last week I told you that there's a resurrection from the dead in the Bible. That's, that's saved people. And there's a resurrection of the dead. That's unsaved people. And it's one of the single greatest places in the Bible, uh, this chapter, that you can really learn a lot of information. It's just, well, you'll see this morning as we go through it. We're going to take our time and break it down verse by verse, and we'll look at it as, as we come through it. Now, I want to begin reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 39. So follow along with me in these first couple of verses here, and then we'll talk about it. He says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for the time that we've set aside to look at your word. We pray that you'll take this passage and and help us to uh, understand uh, the great concept of the resurrection as it applies to our life. Uh, we know, Lord, that in this church there were men who were saying that there is no resurrection and that Christ did not come up from the dead. And Paul dealt with that issue, and now we begin to see him explain it to us. But Lord, we need this explained to us today. We need to see all the ramifications of how it really lays out. And what a great 
series this is of showing you how the Bible uh, is the great book and how we should study it. And Lord, we'll thank for today and we'll praise you for all that you do for us and you give us. In Jesus' name, for his sake, we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 4 says there is a spiritual body and there is a physical body. And this is what he begins to talk about coming down through here. First thing he tells you is that all flesh is not the same. And it's interesting that what he lists here, he lists men, he lists beasts, he lists fishes, and he lists birds. Now, you'll note that those four groups here exactly match up to creation in Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, he talked about creating birds. In chapter 1, verse 21, he talked about creating fish. And in 124, he talked about creating cattle. And in chapter 1, verse 26, he talked about creating man. And this is a great verse because it's the beginning of seeing that there's a difference between men and animals. There's a difference between men and fish. There's a difference between men and birds. And this is the key to understanding and putting it all together. You know, we have... Uh, taught in our schools today, and it's been around a lot longer than uh, the most people even would imagine, but we have the concept of, of evolution, man evolving. And uh, we think that Charles Darwin was the first one who came up with the concept of evolution, and that's really not true. He was just the guy in the 1800s that repackaged it for the suckers in the last part of the uh, 19th and 20th century. The aspect of, of evolution was taught back with the Babylonians. It was taught with the Egyptians. You'll find the Chaldeans uh, thought about uh, evolution. And uh, they teach many of the same things. And the problem is that people don't know anything about history. They don't know anything about the Bible. So when they hear something new, they think it's new. The book of Ecclesiastes already told you that there's nothing new under the sun. And when Charles Darwin came up in the 18. 40s with his theory of evolution and the origin of the species, the whole world was rocked and thought, wow, this is a great thing. But anybody that knew their Bible knew that it wasn't new, that it had been around for a long time. You know, evolutionists, they, they come to a point where they can all agree on certain things, but there's one problem that they all have, and it's called the missing link. Nobody's ever been able to talk about uh, how that Animals can come to a point, and okay, we can say that, that we evolved from animals and we've come up to this stage right here, but nobody's been able to ever put the point in anywhere in history where they made that leap from an animal into the concept of a man as far as his ability to reason is concerned. It's called the missing link. The missing link is how come that birds are the greatest singers in the world? but yet you can't get four birds to sing four-part harmony. The thing is that you can have a German shepherd that's the smartest dog in the world, and you can do him everything, and he can treat him to go get this, and he'll go fetch this, and you can do all kinds of stuff with him, but you put him in front of a computer, and he can't get anything done. He can't communicate with you. An animal knows four or five sounds, and if you have dogs and you're in tune with your dog, I can tell my dog when, when, when he's got to go out because he goes on the floor, and I can say, yeah, he had to go, didn't he? No, you can tell by their bark. You can tell by their whine, by their cry. You can tell when a dog's afraid. You can tell when a dog is angry. You can tell when a dog is telling another dog. I, I think it's the funniest thing in the world. Uh, my big lab is a brown, is a male, 
and next door is the, is the uh, they have a, a kind of a mixed dog, uh, Spencer, and he's a male. And I always enjoy watching when they both go out because it's, it's so true. They, they, you know, they have their dominance. And it's funny, my, my dog will run up the back and Spencer will be out and all of a sudden, Buddy will, both dogs will go into a, a freeze looking at each other. It's just like they're staring each other down. And I just stand there and I'll watch that. And I think to myself, you know what? They're declaring their turf, and he's telling him, this is where I'm at. In a mean look. I mean, like, he's standing here, you know? All you had to do is, with my buddy, is throw him a biscuit, and he'll forget about Spencer and everything out, and he'll eat it. <laughs> dogs can't communicate to us. We like to believe that dogs can reason. They can't reason. We like to think they can, but they can't. They don't think through problems like you and I do. I know we'd like to think they would. Hey, nobody loves dogs more than me. And I like to pretend that, but at the end of the day, I know that that's not true. And the reason why is because there's something missing between man and animals, and that's why he's telling you here that there's four different kinds of flesh, and it's not all the same. You see, the missing element, the missing link that man has that an animal doesn't have is his soul. An animal doesn't have a soul. An animal has a body and an animal has a spirit. But even his spirit is different in ours. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 20 says, All go unto one place. All are of the dust and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man, see, that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth. Now, God is called the Father of Spirits in Hebrews chapter uh, 12, verse 9. And the Spirit of, in, the, in the Bible is a picture of the breath of life that we have. But you and I have a body, a soul, and a spirit. That spirit that you have is different than the spirit of an animal. Because the Bible says in the book of uh, uh, Proverbs uh, 20, verse 27, that man's spirit is the candle of the Lord. It is the contact point that God begins to deal with man. And the difference between an animal spirit and man's spirit is that God does not, God does not deal with animals like he does with man. The Bible tells you in Genesis that animals were made for men. Now, this is why, I mean, uh, this is why, you know, if you ever stop and think about it, that you, when you put it into a practical aspect. This is why we don't eat people. There's something sacred about it. Remember when the soccer team crashed in the Andes Mountains years ago and they never found them for months and months and they were starving to death so they had to go to the extreme and they started eating their own dead as they died? There's such a psychological impact. They would not even tell anybody that. They would not even tell anybody that for I don't know how long. And then everybody had tremendous emotional problems because of that. You know why? Because eating a human being is just not like sitting down eating a Big Mac. Because there's a difference between flesh. And when God created man, he created him a little lower than the angels, the Bible says. And he gave him a soul that he didn't give an animal. And he gave him a spirit to commune with him that he never gave an animal. God made the animals for us. Now, when you go through history, you see how this thing really works. I mean, uh, if evolution is true, and it's we just all come from animals, then in time, you know what they'll do? 
They'll just, when somebody gets old and somebody begins to not be able to be productive anymore in society, then they'll, 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 they'll euthanize them. They'll kill them. And in time, people, you know, that sounds terrible, but when you thought about it, if you're an evolutionist and there's no difference between man and animals, don't you have to put a dog down when it becomes to the point where it's not functional? Well, see, if evolution is true and we're just animals and we're all kin to each other, then what's wrong with putting down people? You see, the difference is that there's a difference between flesh. And when he starts to lay out this aspect of the resurrection, that's the first thing he begins to tell us. There's difference between flesh and animals and men are different. They're different because a man's ability to reason and communicate with God through the soul that God gave him that he did not give an animal, and through the spirit that he has, that's not the same spirit as the spirit that God gave an animal or a beast. And that's really the aspect, and it's a key to a lot of things in the Bible. You see, your spirit is your key to worship. Your spirit is your key to your relationship with God. The soul you have is where God comes and lives once you get saved. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God took up residency inside your body. You know where he took up that residency? Within your soul. You see, God's a holy God. And God, as a holy God, really can't have anything to do with you and me. So God had to create a way that a holy God could live in an unholy person. So he gave man a soul. And then at the time of salvation, God separates that soul from the flesh. Now you got an old nature and a new nature. The Holy Spirit of God indwells man's soul, seals him with that Holy Spirit of God. And now through man's spirit, with Christ living in his soul, God now can fellowship with man. He doesn't do that with animals. See, these are the things you begin to see. These are the things you begin to see. Now in verse 40, he begins to broaden the study a little bit more. Look what he says in verse 40. He said in verse 39, All flesh is not the same, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Now he, he kind of broadened it. Now he's going to talk about two kinds of bodies, but also two kinds of glories. And these two kinds of body fall into two categories, terrestrial and celestial. And remember now, the context here is the resurrection of Christ and how, it, how you and I are to understand it. So when we talk about terrestrial bodies, that would be the man, the birds, the beast, and the fish. Terrestrial is on this earth. The celestial bodies would be angels, cherubim, seraphim, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, within these two bodies, you have two glories, and that's what he wants to talk about. Now, the terrestrial glory will be human man and his glorifying man. In time, if you're ever going to really get everything down, uh, you know, the Bible is not complicated, as you can basically see now from our Bible basics class of getting the basic fundamental understandings of it down. But let me tell you something. It's a lifelong process to put all the other things that go along with it. You're going to see today, maybe from a little glance, that, uh, that uh, in time, uh, as you get the Bible down, you're going to have to learn things about 
astronomy, outer space, to really put it all together. In time, you're going to have to learn things about geology. In times, I already gave you a biology class today on body, soul, and spirit, but there's much more to that. And we just made a mention of it today in a very uh, basic way. In other words, once you get to the place where you begin to get a handle on your Bible, you begin to realize that everything out there that God created, everything out there that man looks at, that man's part of, has some relevance to what God did in the Bible and has some importance to you and I understanding it. And you're going to also find that when you talk about a terrestrial glory, that's man glorifying himself. All history. I don't care if it's American history. I don't care if it's world history. You pick it. All history is nothing more than a record of man glorifying himself over God. In the original sin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what was it? Lucifer said, I want to set my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the side of the north. He wanted to overthrow God's kingdom was his kingdom. And you can say whether it's good or bad, I don't really care. But in the final analysis, every nation on this planet down through history, whether it's American history or European history or world history, I don't care where you go. It is nothing more than men being crowned king, women being crowned queens, people being el presidente or president or whatever over nations. And every one of those nations is a carbon copy or a phony copy of the great nation that's going to come, the nation of Israel, with God as their king. You see, when history started, and when God designed government, he designed it around one government that he started. And it's because he started it that everybody hates the nation of Israel today. It's because he started it that the world, because the whole world's with the devil, that they hate the nation that God started. But that was the model. And God's model for a government is not for a president. It's a theocracy. It's God as king. And that's how he established the nation of Israel. And you don't go very far in the Bible at all that you find that all the other nations that want nothing to do with God, they're counterfeiting that. And when you look at the nations of history, the nations of the world, when you look at the nations down through the record of history, you simply find men trying to glorify themselves by being over a nation that takes that nation not to God, but away from God. And that's why everything that God did in Europe, did in America, was turned around in time by the leadership that took over those nations that took that nation away from God. You know why? Because they're all counterfeit of the real one. Most people don't understand this because they don't know much about the Bible. And you hear it a lot today about America being a Christian nation. Now, America obviously is not a Christian nation today. And we can go back in history where we find uh, that America at its inception was based on the Word of God, based on the principles of God, based on the aspect of God, and most of their leaders were saved, born-again people who understood there was a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Many of the state constitutions, you would read them, you would fall on your face. 
when they were put in, like North Carolina and South Carolina and Virginia, when those state constitutions were put together, they said in those state constitutions that no man could ever hold a state office if he was not born again by the blood of Christ because that gave him the ability to have balance of understanding there was a heaven and hell and make good judgments. Boy, where'd that go today? And of course, the problem is, even with that, America was not a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. There are nations who are run by Christians, and there are nations who maybe hold to the Bible as their guidelines, but that does not, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. There's only one nation that was God's nation, and that is the nation of Israel. And we could spend a lot of time on that this morning, but that's not, you know, that's not our goal. I'm trying to get you to see here that there's a glory of man, and man's glory is glorifying himself. We see it in science. Evolution and science and NASA and all the things in outer space and going to the moon and going to the planets and trying to put probes on Mars and going out to study this and study that. You do know the underlying reason why they're doing that with billions and billions and billions of dollars of our tax money. They're doing it for one reason. They're doing it to disprove the Bible and God and prove that evolution is right. They'll come up with the Big Bang Theory, the Nebula Theory, the Encounter Theory. The theories are endless. The guy said one time, well, I believe the universe started with a Big Bang. That's going back to that now. In fact, NASA right now are listening up at the Antarctic, or Antarctica down in the South Pole. They're actually listening because the atmosphere is so pure down there. They're actually listening for the sounds that happened right after the Big Bang, way out there in space. I told a guy one time, well, it didn't start with a big bang, but it's certainly going to end with one here any moment. And, uh, but science, science it exalt, it, it exists for one thing, and that is to glorify man and not glorify God. I don't care where you go in history. You'll find it in religion. Now, if there's any place that you would think that religion would be based on glorifying God, it would be religion. But very frankly, most religions don't glorify God. Most religions glorify men. That's why they all have a system of works. Because the works takes it off of God doing anything and puts it you doing your own work to earn your salvation. You know what that is? That's taking glory from God and putting glory in the man. Uh, you know, if you're a visitor here or, or you've been around, well, let me tell you something. There's nothing in you, no good in me, that could ever save you from anything. The only way we get to heaven is because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none to do with good, no, not one. And all of our righteousness are filthy rags in the sight of God. And then based on God doing the perfect work that you and I couldn't do, God gives us salvation. Now, when man says, I'm going to get baptized to go to heaven, I'm going to give money to go to heaven, I'm going to get my salvation through this, then he's shunning what God did and he's doing it himself. You see that in Baptist circles. Around the turn of the century, what happened was is the, that uh, the Bible was taken out of the hand of the common man, and then education became the God. Education became the God. And then we have men that, that don't, don't, don't they, God is not the final authority anymore. They become their final authority. And that's the, this whole thing of education today in Christianity. The whole thing of, of somebody getting a doctor's degree in theology, the whole thing is, is building this thing around to the fact that, you know what, it builds man's glory instead of God's glory. 
You ought to know, and you don't know this, and I only know it because I've been around it for a long time, but you ought to feel the feeling that you get when you stand up a bunch of, bunch of people and you're teaching them the Bible and they come to a word and you have the ability to take that word and tell those people that that's really not what it means. But in the Greek or the Hebrew, this is what it really means. You know what that is? That's just flat down telling God he didn't know what he was doing when he wrote a Bible and you know more than he does, so you're going to correct the book that he wrote. Where do you get to the judgment seat of Christ on that one? My position is very simple. The dumber you are, the better off you are with God. Don't ever let anybody educate you out of your intelligence because that's what happens. And that's why we got everybody in theology today, even in the Baptist crowd. They're elevated so high that they're now, they, they hold on to their degree. And I don't care what anybody says. I've been there. I don't care what anybody says. Once you get that degree, I don't care who you are, how humble you are. Once you get that degree that sets you higher than somebody else on the playing field because of your knowledge and what you now know, it's going to affect your spirit and you're going you're to glorify in yourself. You're going to glorify in yourself. You can't help it. Because correcting God is what the devil did in Genesis chapter 3. Correcting God and overthrowing him is what he did in Genesis chapter 1. And our human nature is going to fall every time to us wanting to be like God. Oh, we may be humble about it. We may get up and say, well, I, I took this doctor degree just because, or I got this because I want to reach people and it gives me another avenue and it gives me this and gives me that. Well, you know what? Gee, I just thought if you preach Christ and lifted up Christ, God draw them into him. I never read one thing in that book that you've got to do anything to glorify yourself to get an open door to do anything. I guess I just missed that. I just thought that it was the Holy Spirit of God, no matter what the situation was, if God wanted you in it, he'd get you in it. Maybe that's just me. When the Reformation took place in Europe uh, with Martin Luther, the way the Reformation was countered, which was something that you all learned in history, was called the Renaissance. Now, if you didn't, we didn't live back in the Renaissance time, but if you want to, go up here to, uh, where's it at? It's in Bonner Spring, the Renaissance Festival, which is a neat thing. The big turkey legs are great. <laughs> but you know what the word Renaissance means? You see, this history, putting it into perspective, helps you understand the resurrection, and there's a glory of the terrestrial. That's man. The Renaissance means rebirth of knowledge. And when the Reformation came in and the world was shocked at getting saved and the Word of God was going around and really just doing everything in Europe and all the dead religions had lost their power and Bible Christianity was off and running in Europe. 200 years later, Europe was dead. 200 years later, there was no revivals. There was no power of God. There was no Word of God. What happened? It was called the Renaissance. And it was a rebirth of knowledge. And it produced some of the greatest artists. And it produced some of the greatest sculptures. And produced some of the greatest architects. But it was all to glorify man. It was all nude statues of David. Or man. Thinking. It was all stuff that was back to man's body. Venus with no arms. 
It was all stuff that man did that was focused around the, the, the paintings, the nude paintings and man's body and this and that because it was all going back to glorify man. And it destroyed it. Because there was a glory of the terrestrial, and that's what he's talking about here, and uh, that's sown in corruption. You see it in music. Man's unequaled pursuit to glorify himself. You know, as I said earlier, all these things, there's a theology in architecture. There's reason why buildings in Europe by the centuries are built the way they're built based on the impact of the King James Bible. Most people don't even know that. You certainly see it in art. You certainly see it in the sculptures, but I'll tell you where you certainly see it's in music. Now, when we talk about classical music, we're stupid and we lump all the, the classical musics into one little deal, but that's really not the way it works if you know your Bible. You see, the classical period would run from 1530 to about 1700. And at that point, that was when the King James Bible was busting out Europe. So the music that was being composed during that time, the reason why that's called the Golden Age is the reason why the King James Bible is called a literary masterpiece. It's because that Golden Age, I don't know if you know it or not, but when your King James Bible was written, the English language was at its pinnacle. It was in its purest form. And all languages go through changes. By, by 1600, the English language had gotten to the classic. That's why Shakespeare... If you took the plays of Shakespeare and put them in modern language, nobody would even go to them. It's the purity of the language. And God waited till the English language, which was going to be the last universal language, God waited till that language, got to the pinnacle of its purity, and then wrote the final context of his book, Old Testament and New Testament, and gave it to the world. It impacted everything. It impacted architecture. It certainly impacted music. So you'll find from 1530 to 1700, which is the true classic period, you find the music glorifies God. This will be Mozart. This will be Haydn. This will be Bach. This will be Handel. All saved men who wrote because they wanted to bring glory to God. Bah, but as time went on, man wanted to take that. And as the Renaissance period took glory from God and brought glory back to man, we run into the Romantic period. 1730 to around 1900. Now the music is focused no longer on the glory of God, but the glory of man. Now it's focused on man's thought, man's reason to express himself. Now it's focused on the glory to man. Now we find, we find the aspect of the great German rationalist, Kant, Nietzsche, all coming on the scene. And we find the composers now like Beethoven, Schubert, Chopin and Mendelssohn, all going toward man as the art and as everything else is. Then we come into the modern period. Man's un unequaled pursuit in glorifying himself. The modern period is 1900 up to my birth in 1950, thereabouts. This period appears completely to the flesh. It's all natural, sense of sight. This is where you have the music now is, is very descriptive. Uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, they even hauled in cannons to make it a visual. It's all to sense, to sight, and to sound. Chopin in his, in his light cavalry overture, you can actually see the horses. All oh, Wagner's, Rod of the Valkyries. Valkyries are demons. 
and you listen to that and you can actually feel the hordes of hell in that music as it paints a picture. The William Tell Overture was famous, you know it, as the Lone Ranger. And again, you can hear the picture, or you can see the picture of the horses all down through it. Now, the modern period is all about man, and it's all about sight. It's all about senses. It's all about nothing about God, nothing about glorifying God. Why? Because the glory of the terrestrial will always be about man glorifying himself. And then we come to the natural. That starts in 1950 and runs us up where we're at today. That's aimed at the body. That's aimed at sex. That's why you have drugs coming into this one. That's where man is depicted as an animal. That's where you have the songs like the bunny hop, the foxtrot. You have groups called Three Dog Night, the Beatles, the monkeys, the animals. Now, when you get toward the latter part of it, you have them demon in, in, in devil concept and everything with kiss. Now, music is not enough. It is absolutely torrid and everything against God and demonic but now it's not enough, so some of them bring in the graphics of having sex with their guitar on stage, killing chickens or animals. There was a thing back in the 60s and the 70s that came out that was really big called backmasking. And it was that if you took a, a, a satanic song that was out of the natural movement and played it backwards... The words would come out. It's incredible the way that it does it. The words would come out, and the idea was that it was suggestive inside the there because it was all satanic. And he'd play that record back by Kiss or somebody, and it would say, kill your mother, kill your mother, kill your mother, do this, do drugs, do that. And it was incredible, incredible. I, I never, I, you know, I, 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 I actually went to a couple of seminars just to get, see what it was all about. It was incredible. And you played it backwards, and you got a message. I tried it one time. I, I, my failure was I did it with a country western song. And I played it backwards, and he got his truck back, he got his dog back, he got his woman back, and, you know. You see, this is what Romans chapter 1 told us. Romans chapter told us, 1 told us in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, here it comes, and changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things, just like I showed you. And this is what man does in the glory of the terrestrial. He glorifies man. Now, the glory of the terrestrial is man glorifying himself in a fallen condition. But then he says there's another glory, and that's the glory of the celestial. Now, that'll be the spiritual side of it all. And when you come through your Bible, that'll be angels that God created. The Bible tells you in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, that angels uh, were used in the Old Testament for the disposition of the law, and God uses them as messengers. You're going to find in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, and we studied this yesterday, if you remember it, you're going to find cherubs, and they're always connected around the throne of God. Then you find in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, another spiritual being called a seraphim, and they're connected all the time with the altar of God. 
And then you find the Jesus Christ who was, who was created in the image of God uh, for the glory of God, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, all of these things, all of these celestial bodies where the terrestrial bodies glorify man, these celestial bodies that God created glorify God. And he's getting ready to show you based on that there's two glories. Now, you want to see how it works? When you got saved, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away, all things become new. It's real simple. When you got saved, you now left this world and you're seated in heavenly places. When you got saved, the rest of your life, you cease from bringing glory to yourself then because you have God living inside you and you now are a celestial body living inside you, you cease from getting glory yourself and now you get glory from your life, from your work, from your job, from what you do, from your body, from your actions. You get glory and you give it to God. It just works that simple. He says in verse 41, there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. Now, he just gave us two glories. The celestial belongs to God, his glory. The terrestrial, unsaved man, him glorifying himself. And then he gives us an example of the sun and the moon and the stars as an example of the glory of, at the resurrection so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now, here's where in time you're going to have to broaden your horizons when it comes to the Bible and begin to learn some other things like the music and all of those stuff. But Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and we talked about this yesterday in Bible Basics, is probably, from my standpoint, the greatest single key to unlock all of this stuff in the Bible. And it simply says in that verse that uh, it says uh, that uh, for the invisible things of him, that'd be God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Now that is the key verse in all of the Bible uh, that you have to get down at some point to put it all together. And what he does by his creation, his creation is a picture of everything that he did that when you and I study it through the word of God, what we can't see, we understand by the things that God made. Now, I told you yesterday that you got to be careful with that because there's groups out there, there's a group called, we would call them patheists. And patheist is someone who believes that God is in everything. And uh, uh, an animist is another uh, group of people uh, in, in their belief. They, they don't believe there's any separation between the spiritual and figure, uh, physical. That dogs and people are all the same. The patheist goes so far that he thinks that it's all the same with nature. He believes that trees have souls. Man has a soul. Animal has a soul. Rocks have a soul. The water has a soul. And of course, that's why, as I said yesterday, that's where your tree huggers come from. That's where all this go green stuff comes from. It all goes back to a female deity, in this case, Mother Nature. And back in the old days, you know, when you, uh, when you in the pagan days, uh, they worshipped all of those things, and that's why they worshipped the sun, they worshipped the moon. That's where they, the seasons always brought different feasts that was connected into their religion. 
because it goes back to the fact that they worshiped as a patheist. They worshiped and they thought everything that God created was God. That's not how it works from a Bible believer. You see, I know that everything God created shows me something about God, but I don't worship the things that he created. See the difference? I know that they're in the Bible to teach me something I can't see by something through he created, but I don't make the mistake to worship a tree. Cut it down. A dog, a rock. I, we, I don't worship the sun and the moon. I know they're up there and they represent something, and I'm going to show you some things, but I don't worship those. They're there because God, who I do worship, made them to show me something I can't see by what he made, through what he made. And that's the key. That's the key. And, uh, you know, yesterday we talked about, and even today, uh, we talked about the birds and the fish and the animals. Job chapter 12, verse 7 and 9 is a great passage. It says, but ask the beast, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this. You see, you know what he just said? He says, when you study all those things, you see God. You see God in his creation. You know, I, I've never met in all of my years going out onto an incredible starry night and looking up into heaven for the first time. I've never met anybody in my life that ever walked out on a just gorgeous night and looked up at the millions and millions of stars up there and said to themselves, oh yeah, that got here by evolution. When you stand in the presence of God's creation in your purest form, you were overwhelmed by the fact that somebody a lot bigger than you and me made that. You have to be educated out of that and you have to bring your glory and give it to man instead of the glory to God. But he says there, the, the beasts teach you, the animals. And then he says that God's people are like stars in the resurrection. They're going to shine and the brightness of the firmament or hardly be seen at all. See, it's going to be one or the other. And he says in verse 3, he says in Daniel, he says, many of them shall sleep. Daniel chapter 12. Many of them shall sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. And they that be wise, here it comes, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they shall turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. See that thing? Now he's telling us about the resurrection and now he comes down to show us, you really want to understand a resurrection? Go look at the stars at night. Because you stand out there and you see a bright star and a dim star. That's the way it's going to be at the resurrection. Some God's people are going to shine so bright, it's unbelievable. Others, you're going to be hard to see them. Just like going out, you'll see all kinds of different brightness of stars. That's how you and I are going to be in the resurrection according to what he said. He says, you learn from the animals. You learn from the earth. You learn from the firmament. And that's what you have. That's exactly what you have. And he says, those that be wise, you go into the book of Proverbs, you know what you find? You find nine things that a wise man is. You want to get wise? Told you last week, he that is wise walks with the wise. You know why wise people are wise? Because they go to the book of, of, of Proverbs and they find out the nine things that make somebody wise and they 
become wise. It also gives you eight things that a fool is. And that's how you use it. That's how you take it. That's how you do something with it. Now, in all my years of studying the stars, and I, you know, I, I've been into astronomy all my life. God knew, I guess, by the time I was nine years old, I got my first telescope. And those pictures over there on the wall that we put up with the heavens declared the glory of God, I took all of those, uh, you know, through my years of, of astrophotography, getting captified. But once I got into the Bible and everything started to come to, into play for me, I began to realize that how important it, it was. And uh, in all my years of studying stars, I've, saw, I've, found, I've found seven pictures of stars up there in outer space that match up to the people I've met in my life that are Christians. So I know what he says. When he says that the resurrection is going to be a thing where that uh, some shine brightly and some don't, and there's one star different from another star in glory, so is our resurrection by the glory, whether you gave it to God or you kept it for yourself. I mean, it's quite incredible. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but stars are, stars are graded in brightness by what they call magnitude. And most people don't even understand today that, you know, when you go out there and look at the stars, stars are just like our sun, except we're just a longer way away from them. Our sun would be just an average star. There's some stars out there, they're called red giants. You could put a million of our suns. And you could put a million of our earths, which is about, what, 10, 12,000 miles in diameter. You could take a million of our earths and put it inside the sun. The sun's 186,000 miles around. It's incredible. But you could find some suns out there that are called red giants that are so much bigger, you could take a million of our suns and put them inside. That's how big they are. Our sun is just an average sun. <clears throat> and we look at it as really bright for us, but it's, it's just it's an average-sized star from what they say. But you, 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 you gauge the brightness of stars by magnitudes. And... Uh, with the average night, you go out at a nice dark place, you can see about 5,000 stars with your eyes. Your eyes, with just general good eyesight, can probably see fifth magnitude. One magnitude is the brightest, two is next to the brightest, three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, if you got really good eyes, you might be able to see seventh magnitude. Uh, the the, the uh, 200 inch Mount, Telemar, Mount Palomar telescope, the 200 inch one, it can actually visually see stars that are 22nd magnitude. I can't even tell you how faint that is. The Hubble telescope can see stars that are 2 million times fainter than your eye and my eye can see. It's incredible. And yet, that Bible says that every one of those stars out there represents a Christian. And at the judgment, at the resurrection, some people are going to stand there and they're going to be as bright as you could ever see in your life and other ones are going to be so faint they're hardly able to see. See, the reason why he does that is because every time you go out at night and look up at the stars, he doesn't want you to think about who you're in love with or think about this or thinking about that. He wants you to think about him and realize that someday you're going to stand there and there's one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, one glory of the stars and there's one star different from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. He's teaching them about the resurrection. Now, the first type of stars that you have are what I call the really bright ones, first and second magnitude. And these stars are like a lot of God's people that I've met in my life. These stars are always there. They're always bright. They never change. 
In fact, you can navigate by them. You can set your course in life by them. Uh, I don't care if you're in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere, north, south, east, or west. God has put enough first and second magnitude stars that if somebody, before we had compasses and before we had uh, all of the things, the measuring, the get plotting a course, you plotted by the stars. And there's some stars that were absolutely so bright, once you knew where they were, they were always there. You could always count on them. You could always navigate by them, and it never became an issue that you didn't know where you were. I've met a lot of God's people like that. The people that you want to hang out with in your Christian life are those kind of stars. You want to hang out with people that you can set your course by. You want to hang out with people that you know that are always going to be consistent, that you're going to be there, that wherever you're going in life, you can always look back and you can hitchhike. I've had people in my life that, that don't even know that they did for me what they did just by their lives and what they had did and their consistency and their love for God and their never wavering was more of an example and helped me through life more than they'll ever know. They'll never figure it out or never know about it till they get home to the resurrection. That's what Christians are supposed to be. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 25, you have a great guy there. And I've never, I, like, I got a message on this I've never preached. But this is the best guy back here. His name is Epaphrodites. And I don't know if you ever looked at it or not, but it says, verse 25, yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites. And then he lists six things about this guy. And these six things are what I look for in a Christian to get the job done and get the work done for the Lord. Now, we talk about it all the time. We're here today because God has a job for us to do. It's just that simple. When God brought you to this church, it was no accident. God brought you here because God felt that he wanted you to get a dose and a taste of what we have here. And maybe for you, he gave you the choice. Yes or no, I'm going to serve him or no, I'm not. But at the end of the day, God got something he wants you to do. And if you're in this church, he wants you to do it in this church. Now, some of you will and some of you won't. That's just life on planet Earth. That doesn't change the fact that that's what he wants us to do. God will give a church a pastor or give a, in a man's heart to start a church as we did. And people in that church will come and they'll say, they'll listen to the guy, they'll say, that's just what I'm looking for. Oh, no, thanks. But through that process, God builds around the man that God brought to that church, the people that are going to get his heart, get his mind, get his spirit, get his ideas, and then through that process is going to get the job done. That's how it works. And when I come over here about, oh, Epaphrodites, I find six things. I was talking to Cheryl this morning. Cheryl, where are you at? We're back in the corner. Here's the six things I was talking about. Now, here we go. And, I, and these are the six things that, I, that, he, that, that Paul said about this guy, and I look for him. First thing he says there is, my brother. Now, if you run that through the Bible, you'll find that a brother is born for adversity. So it's somebody that's going to stick with you through the tough times. Then it says, and companion. See, that's somebody that's going to be your friend, somebody you can count on, somebody who's going to be there. Then he says, in labor. He was a companion in labor. Then he's going he's to get your mind and he's going to get in the work with you. Ah, then he says, fellow soldier. 
Yeah, see, you share a foxhole together. You take the incoming, the outgoing, and when they come over to North Wire together, that's what you do. Then he says, a messenger. Got a message. Then he says that he ministered to my wants. He's a minister. And those are the, those are the first magnitude Christians that you find in Christianity. Then you have some that are media brightness. That'll be magnitude three to five. And on a bad night, they're hard to see. They're nowhere as prominent as the first and second magnitude stars, and you never want to set your course by these stars because just a little bit of haze in the sky, and you can't see them. The bright ones, well, I've seen some of the bright ones just stand out there. I mean, you probably don't know where the dog star is in Canis Major, but it's Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star uh, in all of the sky. And it is so bright that if you see it on a dark night, it's a winter constellation. It's right on the horizon. If you would come up and see that thing in a, in a dark night, it looks like somebody's got a searchlight on in the sky. And then right next to it, the, the little dim star you can hardly see. And you've got medium brightness stars. And you know what? You don't want to set your course by those stars. You can't really depend on them in, in all kinds of weather. Then you have your really dim stars, and that would be sixth and seventh magnitude. And uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. You don't even know they exist without a star chart. They're worthless for navigation. They're worthless for finding your way around the sky, at least with some of the other stars if you want to get somewhere. And most people don't know this, but you find things in the heavens like you find an address. The constellation would be the city. The star in the constellation would be the address in the city. And then you get directions from there, and you can find just about whatever galaxy you want. And that's the way it works. But with these kind of stars, you can't find where anywhere. And I've met God's people like all three of these. But when I look at stars, and he says, is one star different from another star in glory? And I compare my Bible and the resurrection of you and me to what God made up there and the stars. And now that I know that some are going to shine with brightness and some are going to shine with not being so bright. When I start studying it, I, I find some other stars that I think is incredible. And they match up to God's people I met in my life. You know what the next kind of star is? It's called a supernova star. You know what a supernova star is? For some reason, and I don't know why, nobody ever really does, but you'll see this star out here that maybe is, I don't know, maybe sixth or seventh magnitude, and it starts to explode. And it starts to explode to some place where it gets so huge and so large and so bright. Back in China in the 12th century, there was one in the constellation Taurus that exploded and got so bright they could see it in the daytime. And it gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And suddenly what was a seventh magnitude star is now first magnitude. And, and I've seen pictures of them that they're absolutely unbelievable. And they just get so bright. And they get to the point where they, they overshadow everything around them. And then just as they got bright, they start to go dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as all the energy dies out. And pretty soon there's nothing left of it. I've seen a lot of Christians like that. I've seen a lot of Christians that come to church, and boy, they're on fire for God. They want to do something for God. Boy, they're ready to go. They go out and buy them a wide-margin Bible. They get all the pencils, got every color in a rainbow. They get all the books they can get their hands on, and they're just fired up. They're going to ready to go. They're ready to go to work. Boy, they just put me someplace, use me. I'm going to do this, want to do that. And six weeks later, you don't even find them anymore. Supernova Christians. <laughs> A lot of Christians like that in my life. A lot of them. 
A lot of them. Then there's another type of star called a variable star. Now, in astronomy, they're really rough because variable stars, for whatever reason, they change in brightness. You go out tonight and you look up in the sky and you're trying to find something in the sky and you're going to key off of this star and you look at it tonight and it's, it's, there it is. I can see it. It's a second magnitude. Wow, there it is. Now I can just hip hop over here to get where I want to go. And then three weeks later, a month later, you come out and do the same thing. You try to find that star. Can't find it. It's a variable star. It varies in brightness. Science don't know why. I know why. Because God made stars like Christians. Because some of you, some of God's people do the same thing. You're up one day, down the next. You're shining today, you're down tomorrow. You're on top of the world this week, down next week. You're a variable, variable star Christians. He said that the stars are going to be like Christians in the resurrection. As one star differ from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And just as you find Christians who, who are bright one day and then they're dim the next, their whole world depends on their circumstances. They've never learned to live above the circumstances. They've never learned to deal and have the victory. When the day is bad, it all depends on the day is good. You're like that little stars up there. Today, you're just walking down there with your Bible under your arm. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Two days later, mm, variable. And just like I can't count on them, those stars, to find my way around the sky, you can't count on those kind of Christians for anything. You may catch them on a bad day. You may catch them on a, you may have something to do and it's something to need them to do and you just call them in that bad day and it all falls to pieces. Variable star Christians. Up one month, down the next. Can't depend on them. No consistency. And then the next kind of star is my favorite. We all love these. These are shooting stars. We all like shooting stars. I've seen them in the daytime. They call them bolides when they, they streak down through the sky and many times they explode. There was one here in Kansas City not too long ago and uh, I, 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 I didn't see it, but I saw the trail. It leaves a dark smoke trail. I've seen them at night where they just, oh. Just come down, and I mean, they're absolutely, there's something eerie about them because they're so, it's so quiet, and all of a sudden you see this light streaking down through the sky. And then it's gone. You know, the thing about falling stars is they're not really stars. They're not a sun. Well, if a sun fell through our atmosphere, we'd all be, better get sunblock about 9 million. <coughs> They're not real stars. They're pieces of dead rock. You know when you see a meteor shower? Do you know how a meteor shower happens? What happens is, is comets come through our, our orbit. Comet Hale-Bopp, Halley's Comet, Schumacher. And they'll pass through. And when the comet passes through, it leaves a debris trail. And that debris trail just stays out in space. Well, when our Earth orbits around its, the sun three or four times, five, six times a year, it'll pass through those debris trails that those comets left. And when it goes through, the debris of the comets come into our atmosphere, produce a, produce a meteor shower. I mean, do you, do you just think that meteors are running through space looking for a place, atmosphere to burn up in? No, it's all of these comet trails that's been left over the hundreds and hundreds of years and our planet keeps rolling out in the air and running through them, and when they're through, all those particles start falling in our atmosphere. 
They're beautiful, but they're not real stars. I've seen a lot of people like that. I think most Christians, they, they, we live in a world today that they don't, really, uh, they don't really get saved. They're just like shooting stars. They're just passing through. You'll see them one week and they're gone the next. I mean, you're sitting out there and it's just, whoo, they're gone. See people come to churches today, whoo, just passing through out of some other atmosphere. <laughs> he says that we're going to be like the stars. And so you find shooting stars, which aren't real. They're fake. And I think a lot of people today that pretend they're Christians are really just like the shooting stars. They're just a hunk of dead rock. There's been no real regeneration in their life that makes the difference. Let me tell you something. That Bible says when you got saved, things change. I'm sorry. That Bible says when you get saved, it's a new world. It's a new, things change. Old things are passed away. Oh, you may struggle with some things, and that's a good sign because before you got saved, you didn't struggle. The fact that you still struggle now that you are saved is a good sign you're saved. But boy, these people that just keep on living their lives after they claim to be saved, I mean drinking and drugs and everything else, and it just never bothers them, and they just, that's their lifestyle. And then they actually think that they've really had a day in their life where they've ever really trusted Christ, not according to the star chart you have you're just passing through. You're just a piece of dead rock that flames up for a little bit, and then you're gone. You're gone. Then the last one you look at is, this is another good one. This is black hole stars. You know, science just found black hole stars about 30, 40 years ago. I say they found them. They've never really seen one. They're still theoretically uh, out there. Nobody's ever seen one. Nobody's ever photographed one. Certainly nobody's ever went in one. But black hole stars, black hole stars are stars that don't put out light, they suck in light. Black hole stars are anti-gravitational fields that instead of light going out, light gets sucked in. And because light gets sucked in, there's tremendous heat, but there's no light. Hence, black hole stars. They think that many galaxies have black hole stars at the center. Maybe, maybe not. But certainly black hole stars are found in the Bible. Now, when you know your Bible and you see how Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, all of these things out here he created show you something. This is what Paul's getting to when he talks about the resurrection. Remember I told you there was a resurrection of the dead and from the dead? Uh, we've looked at the resurrection of, of people that were types of stars, saved people, the ones that are going to uh, go to righteousness. Now, there's some who are going to go to everlasting Contempt, that's the black hole stars. You know what a black hole star is a picture of? In every shape of the word. Scientists don't even figure it out. Picture of hell. Absolutely, totally, completely. Outer darkness, there's no light in the black hole star. There's no light in the black hole star. Somebody asked me a question a couple weeks ago, called me on the phone, and they said, could you explain outer darkness in the Bible? What, what is outer darkness? And, and you, of course, you, know, you, you only find it in the Gospels in, in a couple of places. What is outer darkness? I mean, if hell is fire and hell is heat and hell is flames, how can it be outer darkness? Because it couldn't be darkness if there's flames because flames equal light. And see, the thing they never figured out is the fact that there is a black heat. There is a black light. There is a black light that has flames that does not give off any light. And it's in outer darkness and it's absolutely, completely uh, without any light coming out at all because everything is sucked in. It's the opposite of light going out. There's your black hole star. Look at Jude. 
Look at the book of Jude, chapter 13. Jude only has one chapter. But look at verse 13. And there is so much here that I can't even get into today. But, uh, but, but let's read it. Raging waves out of the sea. That's not the Atlantic, the Pacific. That's the great deep back in Genesis 1. Raging waves out of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Here it comes. Wandering stars. To whom? Then their people. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And so when God created the things out there, he created variable stars. He created shooting stars. He created, he created nova supernova stars. He created first magnitude, third magnitude, fourth magnitude, seventh magnitude, 15th magnitude stars. And he created black hole stars. We haven't even got into the pulsar stars and the quasar stars. We don't have time to get into that. It's not a physics class. The bottom line is simply this. You now know that when he starts to talk about the resurrection, he likens it to stars. And he said back there that uh, as one star different from another star in glory, so also is a resurrection of the dead. Now, you and I are, are one of those kinds of stars and one of those kinds of types today. It's just that simple. It's not up for me to tell you which one you are, but the Holy Spirit of God will tell you which one you are. But that black hole star is for unsaved people. That's a type of hell. Now, in the context there, if you go back and look at it, just talking about the fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6, but that verse is showing you right there that everything that God created there is a picture of something that God made down through here. And when you look at it and you see it and you understand it, he said there's one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, one glory of the stars. So we find the glory of the sun. Sun's a type of Jesus Christ. Sun has three types of rays, match up to the Trinity, x-rays. Invisible, you can't see them. God is a spirit. Light rays. Light rays are what you see, Jesus Christ. Heat rays, which are type of the Holy Spirit of God. You don't see them, but you feel them. Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day and a day utter his speech, and night and night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun which, here's your word, is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race, going forth and from the end of the heavens to the circuit and to the ends of the earth, and nothing shall be hid from the heat thereof. That's a verse that tells you that the sun, when God created it, shows you a picture of God, three types of rays which come from it. Then you have the moon, Job 25, one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, one glory of the stars. Then you have the moon, the moon has its glory, but not as bright as the sun. In fact, Job chapter 25, verse 5 says, Behold the moon, and it shineth not. See, the moon doesn't shine by its own light. The moon reflects the light of the sun. So you have the sun's a type of God, the moon's a type of the church. And you and I don't shine by our own glory, or we shouldn't, the terrestrial. We shine by the celestial, so that's why the moon reflects the light of the sun. And the moon, that sun lights the day, the moon lights the night. Picture the church age. And you're going to let your light shine. 
So when you put all that together, you see the sun is a type of the Christ or God, the moon's a type of the church, and the stars are a picture of individual Christians. And there's one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, and one glory of the stars. And if one star differ from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. I've seen that moon when it's a full moon out there. And I, I've seen, and I, I don't know if you know this or not, but it takes 28 days for the moon to go around their orbits. And the moon in its orbit and its rotation is the same. That's why you always see the same side of it. 28 days. You know, over in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's 28 concepts of life, time to be born, time to be dead, and they match up to the 28 days that the moon runs around the sun. It never stops in everything that you do. And the moon reflects the light of the sun. You and I today are to glorify ourselves. We're to reflect the light of the sun, and we glorify God. Oh, but what happens? Science says, oh, there's a great eclipse coming. What's an eclipse? An eclipse is a period of time when the earth, the world, comes in between the sun and the moon, and the moon goes dark because the world blocks out the light from the sun. That's a picture of you and me when we're out of fellowship with God. Anytime the world comes in between you and the sun, your light's going out, folks. Then there's times you're out there on a clear night, that moon is so bright it puts a shadow on the ground. You and I are to light the night. We're the lesser light that lights the night. But I've seen out there where you go out and the moon's so full, but you can't see it. You know why? Because the clouds of this world are blocking out the light of the moon. And when the clouds of this world get in between you and your world and blocks out the light, and my world and blocks out the light, it's a picture of you and I being out of fellowship with God. You see, everything in there. So when he starts to talk about the resurrection and get into the details so we can understand it, he talks about the bodies, terrestrial and celestial. He talks about the two glories, man glorifying himself and man and, and the things that God made glorifying God. When you and I get saved, we're no longer part of the terrestrial, now part of the celestial. God lives inside us. So we're to take what we have and we're to glorify God. And as we do that, there's one glory of the sun, that's God, one glory of the moon, that's the church, one glory of the stars, that's you and me. And as one star differed from another star in glory, so also at the resurrection of the dead. There's a day we're going to stand the judgment seat of Christ, and you're, what you did with God is going to shine, just like you going out tonight. You'll never go out tonight if you've got any brain cells left at all. From this day forward, you'll never go out on a dark, starry night when you're getting in your car or walking your dog or whatever you're doing and look up in that sky and the Holy Spirit of God won't tell you that's what you're going to be like when you stand before me. Are you going to be this star or are you going to be that star? Just that simple. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> what a great chapter this is and how it just never ceases to amaze us what the Bible has and how we're to learn. And Paul took this chapter and he starts to deal with why there has to be a resurrection. And then now we see that all the pictures of it, that we now better understand what it's like, that it's likened to the stars. By the things that God made, we understand the things that we cannot see. And now we have a better understanding. It's just going to be like looking at the scary sky. And some of these dear folks tonight are going to shine with the brightness of the firmament. Some are not going to be so bright. Some are going to hardly shine at all. Lord, let it be an admonition to our hearts and our lives to realize that, Father, when we got saved, we're to cease glorifying ourselves. We're to take our time, our talents, our job, our money, and all of our energy and everything that we do and give it to glorifying you, that in that day we might shine as the brightness of the firmament. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this book. Thank you for all that it is. And Lord, every time I stand up to teach it, I feel so inept. There's so much in there that we could have talked about today. So much there that just goes beyond all that we do. 
but help us to grasp as these little finite minds can. Help us to grasp the basic fundamental things that help us love you, be with you, want a desire to walk with you, and to be used of you in these last days. Take this church, raise up the men and the women that will stand and be taught and learn and grow and observe and then take the word of God and take it out to others. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. All right, as you're dismissed here, don't forget next week, bring your sandwiches in as you come. Ladies, take about five minutes.